What's a Lutheran? Maybe more importantly, why should anyone care? What do your friends and neighbors who are not Lutheran think about your Christianity? Maybe they don't. Maybe they don't know. Why should they care? What's a Lutheran? What's a Christian? Why should your friends and neighbors who are not Christians care about your religion? Does it matter? Is it real or is it just a hobby? Is it something that matters for them or just for you? Is it about your heart or is it about everyone's future? Reformation is a day that Lutherans have historically celebrated. Once upon a time, we would make a big fuss and a big to-do about how we broke free. How thank God Dr. Luther came along and showed us the Bible again so that we might no longer be enslaved to false teaching, which not only emotionally manipulated us, but financially manipulated us. In the last hundred years, you've seen some shift away from that. You, you do still have the Lutherans who would like to rah-rah and sing Mighty Fortress, and, and we're going to do that later. But uh, you've also seen uh, a move toward, uh, I don't want to call it more humble approach, it's almost recalcitrant, recalcitrant and ashamed where various Protestant leaders, Lutherans included, have stood up and apologized for the Reformation. They've said, we're sorry. We broke the church and we shouldn't have. Everything would be better if we'd all just get together and play nice and pretend that there weren't any problems. And I don't want you to hear me giving even the smallest bit of virtue to that nonsense. But I'm also not so sure about celebrating Reformation anymore. Not because we shouldn't, but because we don't know why. And on a certain level, the life of Dr. Luther really doesn't matter if you don't know who King Hezekiah is. If you don't know who King Jehoshaphat was. If you can't tell the story of Josiah and discovering the book of the law, then what good is it for us to talk about this guy, Dr. Luther, much less to quote him as if he were inspired and without error, which he himself would have been the first to tell you he is not. In fact, he is known to have said that he wanted everything he wrote, except for his small catechism, to be burned so no one could ever misuse it. And he thought the small catechism was worth keeping because it was so simple and so clear that you couldn't really misuse it. Although, if you've ever had someone try to cover the truth by saying, put the best construction on it, you can see that even that gets misused. So I, I'm a Lutheran. Die hard. Which means that I believe in Scripture alone as the substance of what I believe, because it comes from the mouth of the risen man, Jesus Christ, one way or the other. And because I believe in Scripture alone as the substance of what I believe, I trust St. Paul. When he is God's apostle to the nations, that us, that's us, tells us that we're not saved by our works, but through faith. That is by trusting in the promise that God is gracious. So we're saved not by works, but by grace as well, by grace through faith. And this all because of the merits, that is the actions, that is the good achievement of Christ alone with his atoning sacrifice on the cross, where he bought you with a price. Yeah, where he made you blood-bought in his name. 
So I believe in salvation by grace alone. And I believe in salvation by faith alone, which means that I believe that the Augsburg Confession delivered in 1530 to the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire to convince him that Lutherans weren't heretics, but were actually just evangelicals. That means those who trusted the gospel. I believe that Augsburg Confession is right and true, especially where it says that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ's works. And when the Roman Catholic Church condemned that, that Augsburg Confession, refuted it, and said that all those who would believe in it are going to hell, well, I then believe in the apology, the defense of that Augsburg Confession, which is also in your Book of Concord, which went to great detail in the scripture to show how salvation is through faith alone. But I don't think that the Reformation was about justification through faith alone. I think it was about finding the Bible. Because one of the things that had happened in the Middle Ages was that the Bible had been almost entirely lost to you, to the laity, and even, believe it or not, to some level, to me, to the pastors. Now, now most of those who would be serving as priests in the church would have or should have been able to read Latin, but Latin was not the common tongue of the people in almost any part of the Holy Roman Empire, which was basically all of Europe at that time. The Bible had been put into Latin sometime in the 300s to 400s by a man named Jerome. And at the time, there were a lot of people who told him he shouldn't do that. Because the Bible was written in Greek and Hebrew and it should stay there. But at the time also, most people spoke not Greek or Hebrew, but were beginning to speak Latin. And so Jerome, as a reformer of the church, put the whole scriptures into Latin. And it became common then for people to be able to read their Bible. A very good thing. But again, over, oh, a thousand years Latin became not so well known, especially in areas that had not been Christian before, like the northern wilds of Germany, where crazy men with blue paint on their face and long beards who didn't wear shirts in the winter and ate nothing but milk and blood, where they converted to Christianity. But they kept their language. Yeah? And so among the German people where Dr. Luther lived, nobody at all knew Latin. And in fact, many of the priests did not. One of his complaints after he did something called the uh, a visitation. Well, after the Reformation got going uh, with some authority from the princes, he went around with some other pastors and they visited all the churches in the area. And he found out that many of the pastors didn't even know the Lord's Prayer. Like they'd never heard it. But they were, they were priests. They, they were leading the people. So, so there was a darth. There was an ignorance. There was a dark, evil cloud of lack of understanding over all of the church. And yes, by means of this confusion, people were willing to believe it when a man with a big shiny robe would come into town and say, look, for only you know, a few pennies here, you can get your way to heaven. Just, just got to pay the tax. Look, look at my robe. I'm authorized by the Pope. Of course, I'm telling the truth. People were willing to believe that. And, and I don't think you're so smart. You would too, if you didn't know any better. Dr. Luther then, uh, believing all of these things himself, spends a lot of time uh, trying to convince himself that he is loved by God. As a monk, he gives his life entirely over to doing everything that he was told to do. 
And what he finds is that he ends up hating God. He just, he just can't find peace of conscience. But he has this really fortunate reality going on. First off, there's an enlightenment, a renaissance beginning. And, and this renaissance, this beginning, is discovering the ancient world. That is, it's discovering not only Plato and Aristotle and Pythagoras, but all manner of, of things from the old pre-Dark Ages uh, uh, era. And then with this comes knowledge of the language of, of Greek. And also, because he is a scholar working for a university, he is studying the language of Hebrew from Jewish scholars who are willing to teach it. And so discovering both Greek and Hebrew, Dr. Luther is then charged to lecture on the Psalms and the book of Romans in Greek and Hebrew to new students at this new thing, this university. There weren't universities everywhere. This was something that his prince wanted to do for his town to make his town grow. He started a school. He thought it would be a good idea to draw men from all over the world to come study in his city. He thought it might be good for the city. Yeah. And so Dr. Luther is there studying Greek and Hebrew, going back to the original Bible, and it's there that he realizes he's been misled. He realizes that the central promise in the Bible is that God is good. And that he's so good that even though you're evil by rebellion, he wants to stop it, not by crushing you, but by buying you. Now, again, that's the justification talk. It's pretty important. I do think it matters a great deal. But what I want to establish for you today is how, if it were not for Scripture alone, and Luther's commitment to studying and teaching Scripture alone, he never would have found faith alone. The faith is in the Scriptures. It's in what they say. What they say is the grace. Yeah. And through all the stories of Scripture, which are history, we're given the history of God's grace to us in this cosmos, in this reality. So again, Dr. Luther discovers this good news. He begins to preach it and argue about it. You've probably heard of the 95 Thesis. He puts those on the church door. They're not even that great, honestly. If you read them, you'll find out that a lot of them are wrong. Um, the first one's pretty good, that the Christian life is a life of repentance. And, and they're basically against the idea that you should buy salvation with money, uh, which I would completely agree with. That that's just a terrible idea to tell you that you need to buy your salvation. So that's the idea of the 95 Thesis, but they set off this entire uproar that leads to him having a bunch of other things that go on. Eventually, he is put before some representatives of the Roman church, and they, they tell him he has to quit talking. He says no. They let him leave the room, which is really weird. They probably should have killed him right there, but they let him get out of the room, and he flees. He is a... Uh, a, a um, a criminal at this point, uh, a price is on his head. He's able to be killed, but he's taken by his own prince and hidden in a tower called the Wartburg up in northern Germany for, for a whole year. No one knows where he is. For all they know, he died in the woods. And it's when he's in that tower that he does the thing that really makes the Reformation what it is. I mean, his small catechism's great. The preaching of the gospel is important. But what changed Western civilization forever, it was when Luther put the Bible into German. That's what did it. When no longer did you need me to tell you what it says, because you couldn't read it. You could read it yourself now, 
and you could ask me what it says. You could tell me I was saying it wrong, or we could maybe debate the nuance of this word or that, and I would say, well, it's a different word in Greek. But by and large, I couldn't tell you. You need to buy your salvation with money that you pay me. Like You'd be like, where's that, pastor? It's not there. In fact, it says you're a liar. It says you're greedy. I'm supposed to not listen to you now. That's what it says. That power given to the German people was what the Reformation was about. And it was what they really wanted to stop Dr. Luther from doing. In fact, there were a couple of men who had done it earlier and not succeeded. You maybe haven't heard of John Huss. John Huss was a, a good generation and a half before Dr. Luther. He lived in what today would be the Czech Republic, and he was burned at the stake for trying to translate the Bible. Uh, this guy named Tyndale in England had some similar things happen to him. So, again, the point is not to bemoan being Lutheran. The point is to ask why. And then rediscover why and not let go. And why is because we believe that the Bible is the inerrant, inspired word of God. And it's been given to you like a gleaming sword with which you can cut through all the wiles of the enemy. With which you can stop his fiery darts and arrows by arming your mind with words that do not change. And that will outlast even the collapse of heaven and earth as we know them now. Now, our Old Testament reading, which I haven't even touched on yet, is just the same story once upon a time, but a whole lot longer ago. I don't know if you've figured out yet how much I love the time of the kings. I find them incredibly inspiring, because in one very real way, real way nothing has changed it's just, it's just the same all over again, only kind of upside down. We have this modern thing that's happened to us. We have our, our giant, powerful iron horses. We drive around everywhere, and, and we feel so safe inside of them, right? And we've got the ability. I can, I can talk to someone on the other side of the planet like this today, so that must mean I'm smarter than those old people used to be. But it's not true. We have a lot of cool toys. Uh, whether they're good or bad, I mean, I think, I think most things – that you do that are different come with a positive and a negative. Uh, in fact, we can learn this from the Amish. The reason the Amish don't have cars isn't because cars are evil. It's because cars destroy the neighborhood. Nobody lives beside each other anymore. They just sleep beside each other. You don't work with your neighbors. You work with other people who you don't see at night, right? That, that's their reasoning. And, and whether they're, it's not about being right or wrong. It's like, oh, huh, I, I can see how that happened to us. Our neighborhoods aren't what they were. So, so technology always comes with a trade-off. Yeah? And you, know, you make your decision what, how much you want to drive and if you want to walk to work. That, that's all one thing. But don't pretend like that's changed us as people. We're still the same flesh of Adam that were those who lived in a time when all they had were horses, chariots, uh, and, and grain from the, uh, the silo. Right? And maybe some sheep. Not much has changed in terms of what we look to do with our life, which is normally try to control it for ourselves. Okay, anyway, so with that as, a, as an aside, I suppose, uh, getting into the history of the kings shows you how normative man's mind is in his ability to forget that we do not remember. And when we do not remember, we especially forget who God is. So we say, show me a sign. He shows me a sign. And 30 years later, I don't remember. Now I want what I want now. That's how Solomon fell away. Yeah. So Josiah is the son of Manasseh. 
Manasseh is the son of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a good king. He did a lot of things to reform and bring back the old religion of Solomon and David to the people of Israel. But his son Manasseh is the complete opposite of him. Manasseh is, along with Ahaz and Ahab, uh, the worst kings there ever were. Uh, the crazy thing about Manasseh is he does repent at a certain point in his life. It's kind of unbelievable. But, but Manasseh does, before he repents, he does so much to destroy the church on purpose that it's kind of unfathomable. I guess in one sense, you can compare him to St. Paul before he becomes a Christian. How in the book of Acts, Saul is ravaging the church. He's going places with official authority to, to put Christians into prison. Well, Manasseh is maybe not putting the prophets into prison, but he is definitely destroying everything about true religion in Israel. He's setting up idols here. He takes down things in the temple. He hides them to the level again where by the time Josiah becomes king, and he's a young boy when he becomes king, by the time he becomes king, nobody even remembers there's a Bible. I can't even imagine it. We're nowhere near that point yet. For all of the lack of Bible reading in American Christianity, for all of the, the putting aside of what used to hold us together, we still have it. It's not hidden somewhere. There's not only one copy left and it's down under the altar and I never look at it. That's the era, though, that Josiah becomes king in the midst of. And what's incredible is that the oral tradition of worshiping Jesus, of worshiping God, is still there without the Bible. It says that Josiah, from the very beginning, sets his heart to worship Yahweh. From the very beginning, he decides to walk in the faith of David and Solomon. That's a beautiful thing. But again, if you look at what Manasseh has done, all of the stuff going on in the temple is wrong. So Josiah doesn't really know what to do. But God bless him, he's pious. And so what does he do? He decides to repair and work on the temple itself. That makes sense. I mean, uh, we have our own building here by, by a tangent that's not completely uh, tangential. We have our own building here, which we've inherited. And as good a condition as it's in, it could be in better condition. That's why we just did the parking lot. But uh, thinking about what we could do to upkeep and beautify the sanctuary, I mean, that's, that's a pious thought. And in fact, uh, you'll probably hear me talk about that more over the next year or two. Uh, nothing radical, but certainly some updates wouldn't hurt. Sound system could maybe be dealt with, things like that. So that's what Josiah is going to do. And he knows that there's money in the temple for this. And so he sends, I mean, let's, let's look at the text if you want. 329 is where this all begins. Uh, he sends this guy, Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshulun, or in verse 3 of chapter 22. Second Kings, uh, the secretary. So the guy who serves as his paperwork guy, right? Uh, what are they using at this time for paper? I've got no idea. It's before papyrus, but I don't think they're using clay tablets. I think they're past that stage. Uh, you have the guy who records things. He writes stuff down. And uh, he is supposed to go to the temple and go to Hilkiah, the high priest, the guy who would have been in charge of the entire temple complex. And this is Solomon's temple, by the way. This is a wonder of the ancient world. It's the whole inside of this thing is, is plated in gold. Can you imagine this whole building plated in gold? Right? Imagine that this pulpit's made out of ivory, but you can't see the ivory because it's plated in gold. 
I mean, that's, that's the temple of Solomon. Okay. It's quite a place. They might've forgotten what they're doing, but wow, what a thing to behold. Go up to Hilkiah who runs this whole complex. And he says, count the money. Uh, What's the focus on that is interesting. Count the money, Uh, which was brought to the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. So they're collecting revenue from those who come to worship. Uh, This is connected to free will offerings and peace offerings and, and a bunch of other stuff that goes on there. But he says, let it be given to the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord repairing the house. Verse six, we didn't hear, hear this earlier, but it says that's the carpenters, the builders and the masons and let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. So over time, things fall apart. You know this with your house. If you don't upkeep your house, it's going to fall apart. So the temple is the same way. He just wants to fix it. And he says, even this is quite something. He trusts them. No accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. I have yet to meet the contractor that I would would give such a contract to, but uh, uh, that's what he says. Okay, so he comes. Uh, Shaphan the secretary comes and he talks to Hilkiah. Uh, and uh, when he gets there, Hilkiah, you got to imagine this is they're cleaning the temple. They're opening it up again. It's falling into disrepair. They're going to fix stuff. So Hilkiah is down in the temple doing stuff and, and he finds something. Right? The high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Oh. What is that? What, what, there's a book? I didn't know there was a book. Wow, I wonder what that says. He opens it up and he reads it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Oh, that's a nice story. Oh, look, there was a flood. Huh, wonder if that really happened. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, Jacob, I've heard of this guy. He's our father, Israel. Oh, the 12 tribes. Yes, this is our history. That's great. Oh, coming out of Egypt across the Red Sea. I've heard that before too. Wait, wait, wait. It says do what? It says do that? It says, if you do this and that, you'll be blessed. That's nice. It says, if you don't do that, I'm going to curse you. If you don't do this and do that, I'm going to send locusts and plagues. I'm going to send sickness and boils. I'm going to drive you out of the land by a mighty hand. and You'll never go back. I got to show this to the king. Hmm? Okiah gives the book to Shaphan. He reads it. Shaphan comes to the king. Verse 9, reports to the king. First, Positive news. Here's the good news. Good news or bad news? Good news. Well, we're doing everything we're supposed to do in the temple, right? Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house, have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Good. Everything's on schedule. That's great. But verse 10, then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the high priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And again, starts with the history. It's great. I mean, Genesis 1 through 3 is filled with so much wisdom. You can study it forever. By the end of Deuteronomy, Moses is saying, you're going to forget. And when you forget, it's going to be over. And when it's over, it's going to be like you can't even imagine how bad it'll be. You'll be eating your children. You'll be the laughingstock of the world. God will make a spectacle of you for you forgetting him. And the king tore his clothes. It's a beautiful thing there. I I was thinking about this as I was reading it this week. I don't think I could. Well, maybe I could right there. 
Find the right spot. Uh, most of my clothes, I don't think if I just tried to rend them, I'd be able to do it. So it's, it's, a, it's an amazing thing to just ponder there. What would it be like to tear your clothes? That's, that's just the how. Um, why? Yeah. There's something about prayer going on here that I, I don't know that I know enough to say about. But I'll try, to, I'll try to give you a hint of what I'm thinking. And that is that, that prayer is a whole body reality. This is why you probably were taught to fold your hands. And maybe bow your head, close your eyes. Why is that? Does it make the prayer work better? Is it magic? No, it's not that. No. Uh, but there's something about signaling what you're doing that is valuable to you and which God appreciates, God sees it, right? So by, by rending his clothes, the king is saying that he really means what he's saying. You're supposed to take him seriously. Everybody who's following him is supposed to go, wait a minute, if the king's clothes are ripped like rags, what are we then? And the hope would be that God would notice that act of contrition that act of repentance, not as a work that earns something, but as an expression of what you believe. So in this sense, what it really is, is the fruit of faith, is rending his clothes. It, it, he, he is doing it because he believes. Now, there's other things that happen in the Old Testament that are similar. Uh, sometimes they put sackcloth on. One of my favorite memories is from the book of Jonah, where the king repents and says, put sackcloth on everybody and on the cows. The cows don't wear clothes, but we're going to put sackcloth on them anyway. <laughs> They're going to wear sackcloth for a while, right? Or perhaps you remember how Job sits in a pile of dust and puts dust on his head. Uh, one of the other things people will do uh, while they're praying is fast. And remember how Jesus says, when you fast, don't tell anybody that you're fasting. Just let God see it. Uh, let God see it. Uh, wh why would God see it? Well, he's, he's going to notice the expression of your faith. Are you earning something? No, God gave you the faith in the first place, but this is a pleasant thing in God's sight to create in you a new spirit which recognizes the danger you're in and brings you to contrition. Huh? Contrition is what Josiah has as he discovers the Bible. And so he begins to put into place as many things as he can to fix it. Let's, let's read a little bit more here. Uh, well, <clears throat> the king commands him, verse 12, Hilkiah, Ahikam, Shaphan, all these guys, verse 13, he says, Go inquire of Jesus for me and for the people and for all of Judah concerning the words of the book. For great is the wrath of Jesus that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of the book. Right? So he recognizes the threat they're in. He says, Go do what the book says we can do, which is inquire of God. Now, interestingly, they don't do it <clears throat> with the Uman and the Thurin. Did I say it backwards again? The Urim and the Thummim. Um, they don't do that. The high priest should have that ability, but it seems they've forgotten about that. So where they go is, is quite fascinating. Verse 14 lists all of their names. Uh, and then it says they go to uh, Hulda, the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikva, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter. They talked to her. And she says, thus says the Lord. So here, here you have a, a prophetess. Uh, these don't come along all the time. In fact, I can only think of one other name of a woman in the whole Bible who has such a condition. Her name's Deborah. 
So Deborah and Hulda. Now, one thing they both have in common is they live at a time when everything is going absolutely wrong. This is important. By the time a woman gets up into the pulpit to preach, everything's already going absolutely wrong. And if she's faithful, then she should preach repentance to them, not everything's great, women's rights, blah, blah. What does she say to them? Tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place. Right? He tore his clothes. Let's go ask God what's going to happen. We're in trouble. God says, yes, you are. I will bring disaster on this place and on its inhabitants. All the words of the book that the king of Judah has read. Because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods. That they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. But... To the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord. When you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought the word back to the king. And indeed, Josiah's reign will be a glorious reign in which the faith is proclaimed, the song is restored, the Passover is celebrated like it never had been before. And, and then again, within, in a few generations, they don't believe again. And they don't repent that time. And God sends the curse Babylon to destroy them. Now, now here's kind of the super lesson right now. You can always repent. And when you repent, God is always merciful. The real destruction which is coming is not the collapse of civilization or the end of a city. The real destruction which is coming is the destruction of this entire planet, heaven and earth. The real Babylonian exile is the hell into which the wicked will be cast. So again, what we take away from this is to see that God is always, while we still yet have today, giving the promise that repentance and forgiveness of sins exists for you. So that your eyes, when you believe in who Jesus is and what he's done, what he's coming again to do, your eyes will not see the destruction that's coming upon this place. You're not going to go to hell. But the only way you know that is the words written in the book. And if we forget the book, well, then we're going to forget everything. And so it's, it's meet, right, and salutary that we would, every year, remember the reformation of the church that took place under Dr. Martin Luther, in which many, many things happened, but the most important was they found the Bible again. They committed themselves to it at all costs. And, and the result for their civilization, by the way, was 400, 500 years of growth in er learning and understanding, in the betterment of people's lives, the development of, of the value of living, the, the, the lifting up of the individual person as important to civilization itself, the end of slavery, all of that. 
coming from the Reformation's discovery of the Holy Bible. It's good to remember. In the name of Jesus, amen.